Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, A Cook Who Refused to Be Left Behind. And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on YouTube or Audio Burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And... Available for streaming now on iHeartRadio. The Marine in today's episode was a most unlikely candidate to be a hero. He was assigned as a machine gunner, but he really wanted to be a cook. And we should tell you right up front today that our hero in our story died in the arms of his sergeant, but he remains missing in action after over 75 years. Stay tuned and we'll provide you with the details of this incredible tale of heroism and camaraderie of a man who refused to allow his buddies to go to war without him. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners in Sacramento, California, who have just become big subscribers to our podcast. May you continue to remember this hero from your hometown and never forget his sacrifice. And now... On with our show. Today's episode is from case number 0427 in the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. Our hero today had every chance to avoid the battle that took his life. But, (laughs) and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, he refused to abandon his buddies when they were called into action. Private First Class Louis Faria was torn in two by a Japanese machine gun on Tarawa, and he died in the arms of his buddies. The fact is, Louis should never have been on that war-torn beach. Why? Well, stay tuned while we fill you in on the incredible details of this case on today's No Home for Heroes. Louis Faria was overweight to be a Marine. There's no doubt about it. He was about five feet five, maybe five feet five and a half inches tall, and he weighed at least 175 pounds. His official Marine Corps photo shows a 23-year-old who is probably best described as roly-poly. He told his Marine Corps buddies that his parents owned a winery in California, which was probably an exaggeration if completely not true. But he clearly was a man who liked to eat and drink. Most of his buddies assumed he was Italian. His last name was Faria, of course. But his parents were actually born in the Azores Islands, which was a part of Portugal. Louis listed his religious preference as Catholic in his records. The letter C for Catholic may have been imprinted on his USMC, United States Marine Corps, dog tags. Private First Class Faria was unmarried. He had brown eyes and a ruddy complexion. His high school photograph shows a kind of Handsome, if on the little chubby side. His eyesight was 20-20, but his official Marine Corps photo shows him with a double chin at age 23 and a pretty thick neck. 
Private First Class Faria's last dental examination was probably shortly after his enlistment in 1942. He had a rather distinctive dental profile with eight fillings or cavities, no extractions, and one wisdom tooth noted at the time of the examination. His distinctive dental profile actually included one large gold crown on an upper left molar. PFC Faria's medical records indicate that he had no previous bone fractures, breaks, or tattoos. But he had a unique and unexplained very large 12-inch scar that extended from the top of his head, across his forehead, and to his left eyebrow. He also had a 5-inch long by half-inch wide scar behind the bend in his right leg. We really don't know what caused these injuries. And to top things off, Private First Class Faria had a 1 quarter inch diameter birthmark on his upper right back near his shoulder blade. Private First Class Faria stated he was born in Richmond, California. His parents were Portuguese, and they spoke Portuguese. His father worked as a blacksmith, excuse me, a blacksmith on the railroad in 1930, and PFC Faria's mother worked at that same time as a seamstress for a lady's clothier. At the time of the 1940 census, Louis was living with his parents, Julio and Maria Faria, and an older sister on W Street in Sacramento, California. The house where Louis grew up no longer exists, and its location is a parking lot adjacent to a freeway. Louis graduated from C.K. McClatchy High School in Sacramento, California in June 1940. The high school, which was only three years old at the time, is still there. I wonder if they have in his high school anything to honor Louis' service and sacrifice. If you live in Sacramento, go by McClatchy High School, the home of the Lions, and let us know what you find there about Louis. Louis was accepted into the United States Marine Corps Reserves in Sacramento and was formally enlisted in San Francisco, California on 4 February 1942, and he received the rank of private. The term of his enlistment was for the, quote, duration of the national emergency, end quote. Louis listed his residence as Sacramento, and his mother is his next to kin, and he completed all of the necessary paperwork to receive U.S. government life insurance. Private Faria completed his United States Marine Corps basic training with the 2nd Recruit Battalion at the Marine Corps base in San Diego, California. After graduation from basic training on 1 April 1942, Private Faria was assigned to the Casual Company Replacement Battalion at San Diego, California. On 1 June 1942, Private Faria was transferred to M Company, that's Mike Company, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines that was then stationed in San Diego. Private Faria's M Company was designated as the Battalion's Weapons Company. The company's armament included 30 and 50 caliber heavy machine guns and 81 millimeter mortars. Specifically, Private Faria was assigned as a member of a four-man machine gun squad. Nine days after this assignment, Private Faria and his company boarded the USS President Adams, a transport ship, in San Diego Harbor. The President Adams set sail on 1 July 1942 and arrived at Guadalcanal in the British Solomon's Islands on 7 August 1942. 
Private Freya landed on Tulagi Island and served in the Guadalcanal campaign during late 1942 and into early 1943. During the Guadalcanal campaign, Louis made quite a name for himself. He volunteered every chance he got to serve behind the lines on kitchen detail. Most Marines avoided this duty and being on KP or kitchen police was not considered good duty. A lot of pot scrubbing and cleaning went along with the cooking effort. But Louis loved it. He fancied himself a cook. And on the canal, he became famous for whipping up something with spam and ketchup and powdered potatoes and probably whatever else he could find and called it genuine Italian food. On 30 January 1943, Private Faria and his company embarked aboard the USS President Adams at Tulagi Island and sailed at about 2.30 in the afternoon of the next day, headed for New Zealand. They arrived on 7 February 1943, and his unit was stationed at Camp McKay's Crossing, New Zealand, for a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. Private Faria was promoted to Private First Class on 17 February 1943. Private Faria, Private First Class Faria, and his unit embarked aboard the USS Arthur Middleton, another transport ship, in Wellington Harbor on 16 October 1943 for amphibious landing training along the New Zealand coast. After a brief return to Wellington, the Arthur Middleton departed on 1 November 1943 for additional amphibious landing training in Afede, New Caledonia, before setting sail for Tarawa. On the morning of 18 November 1943, while on board the Arthur Middleton, Louis was assisting in the ship's galley, which is the Navy's name for kitchen, and he was preparing to come up with another one of the Faria Italian specials. Using powdered potatoes, he poured them into a bat vat of boiling water, which exploded onto his face, arms, and upper body. Private First Class Faria was taken to the ship's sick bay where his burns were heavily bandaged. In fact, he was so heavily bandaged that his buddies described him as being the mummy from the Boris Karloff classic 1932 horror film. Louis was told that due to his injuries, he would be out of the planned invasion and maybe even out of the war altogether. This tells you how serious his burns must have been. In the meantime, waiting two days for the invasion to start, Louis lay in a sweltering bunk in the Middleton sick bay in what must have been excruciating pain from his burns. At a little bit after 3 o'clock in the morning on the 20th of November 1943, Private First Class Faria's unit began climbing down the nets on the side of the transport ship Arthur Middleton into the landing craft that were bobbing below in the darkness, the landing craft that would take them onto Tarawa's shore. Private First Class Faria lined up to take his place with the assault marines. A sergeant observed Private First Class Faria's heavily bandaged face with only slits cut in the gauze for his eyes, his nose, and his mouth. The sergeant ordered Private First Class Faria back to sick bay. But Louis refused to leave. Louis stated, quote, I didn't come here to spend the battle in sick bay. I came out here to be with my buddies. End quote. Well, the sergeant either relented or maybe he just looked away. 
and Private First Class Louis Faria climbed down the nets and joined his Marine squad in the landing craft. It was a fateful decision. Private First Class Faria attempted to land with his fellow Marines of M Company at about uh, a little bit after 9 a.m. on the morning of the first day of the invasion, 20 November 1943, at a position on Red Beach 1, which was known as the Bird, Bird's Beak. His company received heavy casualties during the landing, including the loss of five of its seven officers who were either wounded or killed. In waves of what were called Higgins boats, but officially designated as landing craft vehicle personnel, which in marine parlance means LCVP, the Marines struck the reef hundreds of yards from the beach. They were severely mauled by the Japanese defenders with a hail of fire from artillery and machine guns. Some of the Marine attackers were transferred to landing vehicle track. These LVTs could crawl over the reef and continue the transit to the beach. But most of the Marines simply exited their landing craft and jumped into the water. The front ramp of each landing craft was lowered to allow the Marines to wade the remaining distance to the beach, hundreds of yards. When the boat ramp was lowered, the Marines stepped off into warm water that was between waist and shoulder deep. For Louis, it was probably right about his chin. Soon, many began collapsing as a result of being hit by the intense Japanese machine gun fire. Other Marines stepped off into deep shell holes beneath the water and were drowned by the weight of the heavy equipment they were carrying, particularly those members of PFC Faria's company who were carrying the large components of mortars and machine guns, including metal base plates, tripods, and heavy ammunition cans. As the survivors from the landing craft struggled to wade almost 500 yards, that's over a quarter of a mile, onto shore, they were raked by a vicious crossfire from defenders on Red Beach 2 as well as those in their front on Red Beach 1. Many Marines were killed in the water as they struggled to shore, and more were killed along the beach after they finally made it to shore where they found very little cover from enemy fire. In testimony by private correction by Sergeant Thomas Roy Thaxton, PFC Maferia made it to the beach with his machine gun squad, but they found themselves without ammunition for two machine guns. Private First Class Faria was among three or four men who volunteered to wade back out into the water to salvage ammunition from disabled landing craft and also from disabled tanks offshore. After four or five trips out into the lagoon, Private First Class Faria was struck by a Japanese machine gun and fell about 10 feet from where his buddies were assembled in a bomb crater on the beach. Sergeant Thaxon and his men were able to drag Private First Class Faria into the bomb crater and determined that he had been struck by nearly a dozen bullets in his chest and stomach. Private First Class Faria was barely conscious, but unable to speak, as he died in Sergeant Thaxton's arms. Sergeant Thaxton and his buddies laid him down in the shell hole and covered him with a poncho. His dirty, dirty and bloody gauze from his cooking accident still clung to his face and body. The mummy gave his all.
Sergeant Thaxton stated that he later submitted an award nomination for Private First Class Faria to receive the Bronze Star Medal. But this recommendation was denied and rubber stamped with three words, quote, not spectacular enough. Really? Sounds pretty damn spectacular to me. Private First Class Faria was listed on his United States Marine Corps casualty card as killed in action on 20 November 1943. The document lists his cause of death as gunshot wounds, head, and does not list a burial location. So, as we air this episode today, the remains of Private First Class Louis Faria, the cook who refused to be left behind, refused to take the excuse that he was injured, refused to abandon his boat, has yet to be identified by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency from the bodies recovered on Tarawa after the battle, after the war, and to this very day. Our Foundation continues to assist Louis's family in their search for answers. Sadly, our investigation indicates that Louis is a most likely match to just one unknown who was buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery after World War II. We have repeatedly offered the results of our investigation regarding Louis to the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, but they continue to embark on their estimated 1,000-year effort to identify all of our World War II missing. Yes, you heard that right. Did I say rat? I meant to say you heard that right. At their current pace, it will take the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency over 10 centuries to identify all of our MIAs from just World War II. We don't think Louis should have to wait that long for his return home to his family in Sacramento. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts from, and now even streaming on iHeartRadio. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of Histories of Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Be sure to want to miss our next episode with another true story about one of our missing American heroes. The real story behind the numbers always includes a surprise and a mystery in every episode. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas. I'm your host, Rick Stone reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them. <laughs>